When it comes to air quality, the bad news is that wildfires and air pollution have really degraded the quality of our air. But the good news is that we're all realizing that the quality of our air, and particularly the quality of our indoor air, is really darn important. I'm so excited to tell you about Puro Air because in 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, and gases from your room. It uses a stronger type of filter called a HEPA-14, and it filters pollutants at a microscopic level. I keep my Puro Air running upstairs where the bedrooms are all night. I love that it's quiet. Cleaner air just hits different, doesn't it? Check out everything Puro Air has to offer at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. One more time for the people in the back, getpuroair.com. Well, hello there, friends, and welcome back. My name is Stephanie Safarian, and you're listening to episode 378 of Sustainable Minimalists, a twice-weekly show about intentional and eco-minimalist living. On today's show, we're taking a journey through the decades, and I am highlighting three very specific instances in which the products that we know, we love, and we trust do lasting damage. Now, today's show is the first in a two-part series that we're covering this week. So usually I do the interview portion on Tuesday. We're flipping things up a bit. Today is just me. And then on Thursday, we're following up everything we learn and discuss in today's show with an interview. I am interviewing an advocate for clean beauty who was instrumental in the passing of new legislation. And we'll talk more about that a little bit later on the show. But today I'm highlighting three instances in which products do significant harm. And if you're listening and if you find yourself angry, Thursday's episode is meant to tell you what to do with that anger. Where should you channel it and how should you channel it? So today I have a three-part show for you. And as I said, we're going through the decades. We're talking about blindness with mascara. Then we're talking about the sulfonilamide disaster. That was a antibiotic. And then finally, we're heading to current times. We're discussing Johnson & Johnson talc baby powder. So let's start in 1933 with some mascara. In 1933, more than a dozen users of a mascara called Lash Lure went blind from exposure to the chemical PPD that's also commonly found in permanent hair dye. So a dozen women went blind, and one woman actually died from using this mascara. Now, how did this happen? Mascara is supposed to enhance our beauty, not make us blind. Lashler marketed itself as the, quote, new and improved eyebrow and lash dye. Magazine advertisements said that the new and improved mascara gives you a radiating personality with a before and after. Interesting marketing slogan there. It's not just going to make you more beautiful. It's going to give you a new personality, apparently. Well, the first reported adverse effects from Lashler mascara was severe dermatitis around the eyelids. And people who had this severe dermatitis, their only relief occurred after having all of their eyelashes removed. Then the following year, there was a reported fatality associated with using Lashler. A very healthy 52-year-old woman had her right eyebrow completely removed 
through plucking, and Lashler was applied then to the brow and eyelashes. Within a few hours, her right eyelid was swollen and closed, and the next day she had a fever of 104 degrees. A week later, she died due to a bacterial infection. Now, I mentioned that Lashler contained the chemical PPD. PPD at the time was an untested chemical, and in the early 1930s when Lashler was relevant, the FDA had no safety oversight for drugs, cosmetics, or food. So you must be thinking to yourself, as I did, that Lashler and its makers must have been held liable, right? I would not be happy if I went blind or if somebody I loved died from their mascara. Well, in 1933, something else was also happening. Lawmakers were trying to pass the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, which would provide safety controls for products. And the FDA waged extensive publicity campaigns to get people on board. They displayed at the 1933 Chicago World Fair to highlight the lack of regulation in the cosmetics industry. They actually, even in these campaigns, in these ads at the World's Fair, they featured before and after photos of one of the women who was blinded by Lashler. It did take five years. However, the FFDCA did finally pass. And the first product that was seized under the new law was, of course, Lashler. U.S. cosmetic manufacturers were notified that using PPD in their products and their lash dyes and their eyebrow dyes would be a prosecutable offense. Now, the company that was manufacturing Lashler did seek to protect itself against damage by enclosing in each product a release that had to be signed by customers that absolved them of any blame if their product resulted in injury. The only consequence that Lashler's manufacturers experienced was having their product seized once the FFDCA was passed, because technically before that, they weren't doing anything illegal, so there was nothing to prosecute. Now, my interview on Thursday is with Jessica Brennan, and she's a clean beauty advocate, and she recently, well, she's done a lot with regard to advocacy for clean beauty, but she, in December of last year, traveled to Congress and was instrumental in the passing of updated beauty laws. And we're going to talk about the realization and the sad fact that beauty laws have not changed since this moment in time in 1938. And the law that we're talking about here, the FFDCA, it is not at all comprehensive and it does not at all protect consumers like you and me. Now, PPD is not currently allowed here in the United States for lash or eyebrow dyes, but it is still used in permanent hair dyes. Now we're moving on to around the same time, 1937, we're talking about sulfonilamide. Let's talk about sulfonilamide for a minute. Sulfonilamide in its pure form is an antibiotic, but it will not dissolve in water, so it is a dry powder. And drug companies wanted to find a way to make sulfonilamide into a liquid form, so it could be taken by more people as an antibiotic. So whenever you needed an antibiotic, We're trying to make sulfonilamide into a liquid so that sulfonilamide can be the antibiotic of choice. Now, Samuel Massengill, he set out to solve this problem. He challenged his head chemist, whose name was Harold Watkins, to make a sweet liquid form of sulfonilamide. Harold went to town. He experimented his heart out. 
And then Watkins found that a solvent, diethylene glycol, could dissolve sulfonilamide. So Watkins added a little bit of raspberry flavoring and then started manufacturing what he called elixir sulfonilamide. Elixir sulfonilamide was then prescribed by doctors as an antibiotic, and 107 people, 107 Americans, were killed. Many of them were children. At first, these children and some adults uh, experienced nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. Then what followed quickly after was kidney failure, weakness, and coma for those who consumed this mixture. Now, what went wrong? Why did this happen? Well, diethylene glycol is more commonly today known as antifreeze. It is poisonous to human beings, and Harold Watkins, the chemist who developed this elixir, did not know it was poisonous at the time. He felt so horribly about killing 107 Americans, many of them children, that he actually committed suicide a year later. Now, you might also be wondering, were there consequences for Samuel Massengill, the head of the company who tasked Harold with the job of making sulfonilamide a liquid? Samuel, again, head of the company, he remained unrepentant. His stance was essentially that he's sad about the fatal results, but there was no error in the manufacture of the product. So he didn't feel all that bad, apparently. And under the laws at the time, there was no requirement for demonstrating that new medicines were safe. The only demand that the FDA imposed on new medicines required that they be labeled accurately. So Massagill was fined $26,000 for inaccurately labeling his medication. He misused the term elixir on his medicine. The term elixir must use ethanol as a solvent, not diethylene glycol. So he was fined $26,000 for misusing a word, not for killing 107 people. And if he had called the product a solution instead of an elixir on the packaging, he would have violated no laws, the FDA would have had no legal authority to ensure recovery of the drug, and many more people most likely would have died. The elixir sulfonilamide tragedy, together with the Lashler tragedy, prompted lawmakers to pass the FFDCA, which we already discussed. And I do want to say here too, though, that there are plenty of countries that do not currently have controlled drug testing programs still. And so hundreds of children have died from being poisoned with ethylene glycol-containing medicines. In 1992, most recently, 200 children died in Bangladesh from taking ethylene glycol-containing medicines, so medicines with antifreeze in them. So we're going to go ahead and take our ad break, but when we come back, we're going to get to recent times. We're talking about cancer. We're talking about Johnson & Johnson's baby powder. We're talking about the Texas two-step. So if you've been hearing something in the news about Johnson and Johnson and courts and bankruptcy and etc. We're talking about all of that after a quick sponsor break. So many of us have chaotic closets that are crammed full of clothing items and yet somehow we still have nothing to wear. Well, upgrading to high quality and affordable pieces from Quince when you need them is a game changer. They offer organic cotton sweaters and washable silk tops. My 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters are my go-to. 
Not only are they affordable, but the quality is top-notch. They wear better than the cashmere sweaters that are double their price. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash sustainable podcast for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sustainable podcast to get free shipping and 365 day returns. One more time, quince.com slash sustainable podcast. Hello, Sustainable Minimalist listeners. Are you committed to living a greener and simpler life? Well, meet Home Threads, your ally in more sustainable and minimalist home decor. As the total destination for decor and furniture, Home Threads helps you define your minimalist lifestyle while respecting the planet. Discover their exclusive Haven collection. They use many sustainable materials without compromising on style. And here's the best part. Home Threads always has the best value. It was time. After nine years of living in our home, it was time to replace our outdoor furniture. And my husband and I, we went to Home Threads. We have a Home Threads patio umbrella and a new bench. And oh my goodness, we are so in love. Create a home that reflects your commitment to the environment. Visit homethreads.com slash sustainable and get a code for 15% off your first order. Homethreads.com slash sustainable. Love where you live. And we're back. On today's show, we're discussing three very specific instances here in the United States where the products we know, we love, we trust do lasting damage to human health. Before the break, we discussed Lashler Mascara, and then we talked about the sulfonilamide elixir. And now we're on to Johnson & Johnson's baby powder, which has been in the news for many years recently. For many years, Johnson & Johnson has sold talc baby powder. This product, I mean, I grew up with it. It's baby powder in a white... I don't know, not a canister because it's plastic, but you know what I'm talking about. It's talc baby powder. We all know what it is. It has earned the company billions of dollars. The problem is that as these babies who were covered in baby powder, as these babies grew up, they started getting cancer. And then they began suing Johnson & Johnson. Last year, 22 plaintiffs cemented a $2.12 billion judgment against Johnson & Johnson for cancer caused by its baby powder. Another 34,000 cases and counting remain in progress, each with the potential for a similar verdict. So 34,000 cases still awaiting judgment. These lawsuits are based on the plaintiff's claim in all 50 states, by the way, that Johnson & Johnson knew about the presence of asbestos in its products containing talcum powder. Plaintiffs argue that J&J not only knew about it, but failed to warn consumers of the risk. Now, both talc and asbestos are naturally occurring minerals. They're often mined next to one another. And while talc is used in a number of cosmetic products, including baby powder, Asbestos is a known carcinogen. It's known to cause cancer, and it has been linked to, of course, other serious health issues as well. Now, the presence of asbestos in talc-containing products 
has become public only within the last few years. And though only a small percentage of talc products screened positive for asbestos contamination, and there was no consistent link between talc products and asbestos, the fact that any asbestos was detectable in any cosmetic talc product raises big concerns. Okay. So I mentioned that there's 34,000 court cases and counting against Johnson & Johnson. What is Johnson & Johnson, the mega corporation, to do? Well, they're turning to bankruptcy courts, but they're doing so with a twist because Johnson & Johnson is not filing for bankruptcy. They're instead using an obscure Texas law to divide itself and move its assets into one business and then its talc liabilities into another. So the talc liabilities businesses will then file for bankruptcy. This technique, I guess I should say, this maneuver is called the Texas two-step. And if the talc liabilities portion of Johnson & Johnson does indeed file for bankruptcy, many of the plaintiffs will not receive any settlement from Johnson & Johnson. And Johnson & Johnson, the portion that does not have talc liabilities, will continue on running business as usual. So we're going to talk about the crazy things that Johnson & Johnson are doing to avoid paying out the 34,000 people and counting (laughs) that they have potentially hurt. But before we do that, I just want to step a little bit back in time and talk about the timeline here. So in October of 2019, the FDA completed its year-long study of talc-containing cosmetic products. And after detecting asbestos in several of them, the FDA worked with many manufacturers, including Johnson & Johnson, on recalls of some of the products that contained traces of asbestos. Later that same month, Johnson & Johnson recalled one single lot of their baby powder. By April of 2020, Johnson & Johnson was named in thousands of lawsuits alleging that link between the company's talc products and cancer diagnoses. This led the company to announce that it would no longer sell talc-based baby powder products in the U.S. or Canada. And as of July 2022, the cases kept racking up. Over 30,000 cases related to asbestos and talc products, and Johnson & Johnson, as of 2022, had paid $4 billion approximately in settlements, with much more to come, right? So again, in order to evade paying the 34,000 cases that are still awaiting ruling, and in order to protect the overall megacorporation, in 2021, Johnson & Johnson created a subsidiary called LTL Management. They then filed for bankruptcy for LTL management. Now, the plaintiffs who are still awaiting their day in court, right? And I should say here too that that's assuming they get their day in court because many of the plaintiffs have cancer. So they may not have years to sit around and wait for their day in court to come. But Telk plaintiffs oppose the current settlement plan because they believe that Johnson & Johnson's actions represent an abuse of the bankruptcy system. The megacorporation is valued at more than $400 billion. It is in little danger of running out of money to pay its cancer victims. And that's according to Reuters, by the way. That's not my opinion. That's according to Reuters. And so 
using the Texas two-step is a sneaky maneuver to get out of paying these consumers what they're due. Now, you might be wondering to yourself, well, what is the current state? What's happening? Well, as of last month, a judge who's overseeing this whole situation, all the cases, the creation of LTL management subsidiary, the judge has ordered all parties to return to mediated settlement discussion. So go back to mediation and try and work it out. This judge has also temporarily halted all litigation cases that are already filed. So those people who are waiting for their day in court, there's currently no days in courts happening for any of them. Whew. So heavy episode today. Thursday's episode, again, is an interview with somebody who has been instrumental in the signing of the Modernization of Cosmetics Regulation Act. This was signed on December 29th of last year. It will go into effect in 2025. It is the first substantial update to the FDA's cosmetic regulation. We're going to talk to her on Thursday about advocacy work, not necessarily going to the Capitol building and picketing, but how can we all be advocates so that we can have a little bit more trust in the products that we use. So that's on Thursday. Show notes for this episode are at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 378. There's some extra reading links, especially in there, if you want to go a little deeper into any of the three instances we discussed today. A big thank you to my right-hand woman, Rachel, for providing the in-depth research for today's episode. I will see you on Thursday. As always, reach out if you need me and take care.